Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and our special guest, Dave. We're three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting ruminations about the music and the rockers who inspire us. This podcast is brought to you by utelconcerts.com, which is dedicated to spreading the love of live music. Check out utelconcerts.com, where you can read and submit concert reviews, enter contests for free tickets, view concert photos, and see an extensive calendar of upcoming shows in the L.A. area. utelconcerts.com, because when you tell concerts, it's cooler. In today's Rocktail Hour, Treg is going to bring us the story behind Tom Sawyer by Rush. I love Rush, and this is a great song by Rush. I think it's their quintessential song. Uh, great song. It, it highlights everything that's great about Rush. Uh, the Getty Lee's vocals, Alex Lifeson's guitar, and especially Neil Peart's drumming. It's just phenomenal all the way around. Tom Sawyer is the first cut on Rush's 1981 album, Moving Pictures. This is Rush's best-known song, and it's an FM radio staple. You can hardly go a day if you're listening to FM radio and without hearing this song. Moving Pictures is the band's most popular album. It includes songs such as Limelight and Red Barchetta. I'm of the opinion it's their best album, but there are other hardcore Rush fans that might disagree with me about that. Geddy Lee has referred to Tom Sawyer as the band's defining piece of music from the early 1980s, and I think it's certainly, uh, I think that's certainly true. In 2009, it was named the 19th greatest hard rock song of all time by VH1. Uh, I looked on the uh, Ro Rolling Stone 500 list of greatest songs of all time, and I couldn't find it there. It's a travesty. I demand a revote. I didn't find any songs by Rush, and that's just wrong. I'm not sure why that is. And yet, like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan is number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom Sawyer is one of five Rush songs that were inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, and it was inducted in March 28th, 2010. I'm not sure what else would be there. <laughs> <He's a Canadian. laughs> You've got Neil Young. Neil Young, that's true. He would have a lot. Brian Adams is from Canada. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the song, uh, Tom Sawyer, was written by Getty Lee, Neil Peart, and Alex Lifeson in collaboration with Canadian lyricist Pai Dubois. Tom Sawyer came about during a summer rehearsal holiday that Rush spent at Ronnie Hawkins' farm outside of Toronto. Peart was presented with a poem that Dubois had written called Louis the Lawyer which struck me as really funny. <laughs> Who writes a poem about lawyers? Especially if your name is Dubois. Yeah. <laughs> there, are just, there are just certain words that should never be said, and Dubois is one of them. Don't ask me why. So Pert, so Pert took the poem, and he modified it and expanded it, and then they set the poem to music. And it, 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 it's, it still strikes me as kind of strange. I, I searched through the lyrics of this song, Tom Sawyer, to find any reference to Lewis or the lawyer, and nothing. You know, there's no reference at all to that. I tried to find, I tried to find the poem on the Internet. Couldn't find it anywhere either to, to, to try and compare them. But, you know, it, it occurs to me, I'm, I'm a lawyer, and to think about a song about a lawyer, that to me would just be death metal not progressive rock, you know. <laughs> anyway, this is what we have. We have Tom Sawyer, and it came from the poem called Lewis the Lawyer. So Neil Peart said uh, about the song, he said, Dubois' original lyrics were kind of a portrait of a modern-day rebel, a free-spirited individualist striding through the world, wide-eyed and purposeful. 
I added the themes of reconciling the boy and man in myself and the difference between what people are and what others perceive them to be, namely me, I guess. Isn't it interesting that rockers will describe their songs and, and tell us what they meant and, the, and the, the intent behind them, and they always sound so deep and meaningful. And, and then you listen to rock and roll, and it's it's earthy and it's guttural and it's not at all like the very deep message that that they're describing when they're talking about their music so i think that's great i'm not i'm not trying to be negative i'm just saying it's interesting to hear it described like that in a very sophisticated way and then they start playing tom sawyer and it just rocks so that's cool (laughs) yeah and often because uh you know because of the the style of music that it is, as we've talked about a couple of times, that the message doesn't always match the music. No. Although in this one, I mean, when you're thinking about a song that's about a, a modern-day free-spirited rebel, and you get this great driving beat, I think it matches great. Yeah. And I would say this is one of those interesting, uh, really good hard rock songs from the 80s that tries to incorporate some of those 80s sounds, but it's to me it still sounds timeless now. And... Um, Man, this is just a great song, and the complexity of, of the music and, and and the use of instruments is just great. Yep. Well, the, the title and the lyrics are loosely based on the character Mark Twain created in his first novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which was published in 1876. The lyrics are really cool. Um, novels could be written about the meaning of this song, and in fact, I read on the internet about a guy who wrote a college thesis about this song, treating it as poetry, and he, and he wrote a thesis about it. Wow. Very Did he publish that on the Internet? Uh, he just, small excerpts of it, yeah. It was really interesting. So the, the song starts out with, A modern-day warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. So right off the bat, it sets up this modern-day warrior who's striding, prideful, um, confidence a lot of self-confidence i still don't see any reference to the lawyer there but other than it's describing a pompous (laughs) 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 mean mean pride yes (laughs) so then then the next verse is though his mind is not for rent don't put him down as arrogant his reserve a quiet defense writing out the day's events so here you get an image of a guy who's who's who has quiet confidence. When I was coming of age, a young teenager when this song came out, I remember that lyric in particular resonated with me, though his mind is not for rent. Because here you are in your coming of age years, and you have everybody, your parents, authority figures, school teachers trying to fill your mind with what they think is important. And the exactly. natural tendency is to rebel against that. Yeah. And here's Tom Sawyer. Though his mind is not for rent. And I remember I said, I want to be that's like me. Tom Sawyer. That's, <laughs> that's, how right. I feel. that's how I want to be. I don't know if I'm that guy, but I want to be that guy. Yeah. Well, thus began the angry young man. <laughs> <laughs> that continues today. Yeah. <laughs> then, then the lyrics continue, and, and I find this to be even, even a little bit better, where it repeats that line again. His mind is not for rent to any god or government, All, which is a great image, you mm-hmm. know. He's, he's an independent, fiercely independent, free-thinking guy, and he is not going to cave into any political party or necessarily any religious, any religious dogma. And then it goes on to say, always hopeful, yet discontent. He knows changes aren't permanent, but change is. 
That's my favorite line. Uh, that's from a the great whole. line. Now I have never heard that line before. You got to read that again. That's awesome. Yeah, he you knows know, changes aren't permanent, but change is. You know, that's not an original thought, but that is a great way to describe that. Absolutely. The brilliance of it, looking at it on paper and listening to Treg say it, as opposed to Getty Lee singing it, I've heard him sing that as many times as I've heard the song, which is in the hundreds. Yeah. And I've never known that what he's saying is, but changes. Yeah. I think he's kind of screaming out, and I thought he said, like, oh, changes. Yeah, yeah. 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 But that's a much more poignant uh, verse, knowing what it's what the real lyrics are. Yep. I love this song, and I'm liking it more and more. <laughs> the, the thing that, that really affects me about that is, because I'm, I'm a guy who's who's got a lot of anxiety, you know, in a lot of ways about change. I don't like change, you know. I kind of like... Uh, um, Wayne's World, kind of like Garth, kind of like Garth on Wayne's World. You know, we fear change. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about when Bugs Bunny dresses up like a girl. <laughs> I was like, wow, Trig, not for the podcast, please. That's the best part of that movie. Go ahead. So, but this is this this is really this is really insightful. Changes aren't permanent. You know, life life is going to change, and those changes aren't permanent. But what is permanent is that. Life is going to continue to change. Yeah, that's profound. Very profound. Yeah. So not only are, are the uh, the lyrics to this song profound, but the music is phenomenal. Um, you get this. Th- th- there's this growling sound uh, that Getty Lee creates from through his synthesizer that that many have tried to figure out how he does it, and he won't tell the secret. But you know, he, he has some. Sp- there's some specific setting with his. Oberheim synthesizer that he creates this growling noise. It's just, you know, when, when you hear it come on, you know instantly that's Rush. Um, Alex Lifeson, great guitarist, and he describes his guitar solo in, in a 2007 interview. He said, I winged it, honest. I came in, did five takes, then went off and had a cigarette. I'm at my best for the first two takes. After that, I overthink everything and I lose the spark. Actually, the solo you hear is composed together from various takes. Hmm. I found that to be pretty cool, you know, that here's a professional guitarist and he's saying, man, I got to get it in the first two takes because after that, I just, I can't, I can't capture that magic as, as well anymore. Um, I think Lifeson is great on guitar, but I don't think he gets much respect. You know, there's not a lot of people who are out there saying that he is the greatest guitarist ever. And well, I think a- it's because... I, I think it's because he's surrounded by Neil Peart, who is the greatest drummer ever, in my mind, and Geddy Lee, who is one of the greatest bassists and, and vocalists ever. So when you're in the shadow of those two guys, it's it's kind of hard to stand out. I think that's I think that's your personal opinion about those two from that band. I don't think Rush gets the kind of respect that it deserves, and I think that's why ultimately... Ultimately, I think that's why Alex Lifeson doesn't get the respect that he deserves as a guitarist. Um, as you said, none of Rush's songs are listed on Rolling Stone's 500 songs. And I mean, that's not the the end all be all of, of where you want your songs listed. But the idea there is, is that I think there's a there's a diehard group of very, very loyal Rush fans. And I think there's a lot more of them than people realize but you just don't hear a lot about Rush. And a lot of that, I think, is due to the band members. You don't see them seeking any kind of publicity, even True. in the day. You know, even in 1981, when this was this was the song you heard constantly all summer long, 
you didn't see them on the TV. You didn't see them on MTV. It, it just they weren't seeking the limelight or publicity. And I think that has a lot to do with with why you don't hear a lot said or you know in Good print. Point. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you look at Rush, I came of age in the '80s and a little bit into the '90s. But what I've heard, and you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that the kids in the '70s that would show up to high school with a Rush T-shirt on were not thought of necessarily as the cool rock and roll kids. It was a little bit of a niche product, so to speak, in terms of what Rush was putting out there um, compared to the more popular bands. And maybe, and I don't know if that's true or not, but if so, I would maybe attribute it to the fact that Rush was, for its time, a progressive rock band. Their goal and their aim was to take traditional rock and turn on its head. They were doing songs in 7-8 time, 5-4 time. And um, that didn't, one, play well on the radio, I don't think. And... You know, I think what does that were... mean for us non-musicians? Well, sorry, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll clarify. I would say probably ninety percent of rock is in four-four time. You got four beats to a measure. Okay. Seven-eight time, you have seven beats to a measure, and it's very odd to the listening ear unless you're really adept at doing it. Uh, Free Will is an example. They have a lot of funky time signatures in there. I don't know if Tom Sawyer is, but I think Rush was somewhat of a a, a niche type of a, a band in its day we look at it now as you know classic uh, foundational yeah, it's just yeah. classic to rock. what we like yeah. I, I would point out that i've never seen anybody wear a rush t-shirt so right <laughs> <laughs> ever <laughs> i have have you yeah but not very many uh plenty okay plenty. yeah I go to a lot of concerts, and there's well, a okay, lot of people, yeah. like, concert goers, yeah. wear Rush t-shirts, whether they're seeing Rush or not. You're not going to go to Fred Meyer in the 80s and find a Rush t-shirt, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that there is a more dedicated group of concert fans. Maybe maybe Grateful Dead back in the day, but Rush probably has the greatest, most dedicated fans of any band. Mm-hmm. They're incredible, and, you know, they... Uh, they put on a phenomenal show. I have never seen them yet, but Dave and I, we're going in November, and I can't wait. It's going to be great. Absolutely. Rolling Stone recently came out with their list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time that were voted on by uh, musicians and, and industry experts, and Alex Lifeson barely cracked the top 100. So I guess that's a little bit of respect, but I would probably would have ranked him a little bit higher. I thought he did. he had some phenomenal uh, guitar work in, on a lot of those albums. I would agree. Neil Peart also, uh, in Tom Sawyer, he delivers an impossible drum solo. Yeah, in the documentary about Rush I was watching the other night, uh, Beyond the Lighted Stage, he said something like, Tom Sawyer is so challenging to play that he enjoys playing it in concert because sometimes he plays it flawlessly, and <laughs> as he did on the recording. And I, I, I just I think that's amazing when you've got the greatest drummer of all time who who says, oh man, sometimes I get it perfectly. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's a tough song. There's a there's a great um, music video on YouTube of live footage of the band playing the song. It was probably a promotional video video that they put out, and you watch that and you see Neil Peart is just furious on the drums. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Getty Lee said that the band hated the track when they first recorded it. He said that, uh, and I quote, I remember being disappointed in the studio thinking that we really didn't capture the spirit of the song. We thought it was the worst song on the record at the time, but it all came together in the mix. Sometimes you don't have the objectivity to know when you're doing your best work. 
I found that to be pretty insightful. So here they were creating probably the greatest song of their career, and none of them liked it until they heard it in the mix. Yeah. Kind of interesting. It also shows you how critical it is for the producer and whoever is mixing it. I mean, Beatles had their fifth member, um, you know, in terms of, of production. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's as much of a part of the music and the song as sometimes the songwriters and the instrumentation and the vocals. Absolutely. Geddy Lee also told the Plain Dealer newspaper that Tom Sawyer is the one song we have to play for the rest of our lives. When we wrote it, we had no idea that it would touch such a nerve with people. In many ways, it's the quintessential Rush song. Oh, I would agree with that. I, I can't imagine somebody saying Rush and your mind not immediately going to Tom Sawyer. Yeah. yeah. Or can you imagine going to, to, to their concert and they don't play it? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> they probably play it twice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> In 2008, Rush performed Tom Sawyer on the Colbert Report on TV. Before the performance, the host, Stephen Colbert, interviewed the band and asked if some of their songs were so long that they had actually influenced themselves by the end of them. <laughs> so then, you know, throughout the episode, they continued to, to joke about how long Rush's songs are. And, and uh, at one point, um, Colbert acts like he's falling asleep and then they cut to a commercial and come back and Rush is still playing the same song. <laughs> but actually, Tom Sawyer's only four minutes and 33 seconds. They do have some, some long songs, but, but that one's not very long. That's right. You mentioned that Getty Lee said that Tom Sawyer is the quintessential Rush song. It's interesting that they picked that from their catalog for the Colbert Report. That, show, that airing of Rush on Stephen Colbert's show what I, if I remember correctly, was their first time doing a television appearance in about 10 years. And so it's kind of cool that they chose Stephen Colbert, which I believe he might be a Canadian too. Oh, wow. I don't know if he's in the Canadian Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but <laughs> he, um, you know, I, I was watching that interview and kind of with bated breath waiting to figure out what song is Rush going to play. And it didn't surprise me at all when the first notes to Tom Sawyer yeah, hit yeah. and hit hard. Fantastic. You know, the first time I heard this song, I was at a golf course, and, and we were buying, you know, Cokes after the after playing a round of golf. And I remember how great that day was, you know, and we were 15, 16 years old and had been out golfing, and it was a beautiful day. And this song will always remind me of the sunshine and the summer and being on the golf course, and um, happened to be with uh, uh, a guy that Treg and I graduated from high school with, you know, Brian. <laughs> and <laughs> great guy and he loved absolutely loved rush tom sawyer I, he could not hear that song enough and and the only other thing i'd say about this song is this is the very first song i heard on a sony walkman <laughs> <laughs> so you better so, explain sony walkman oh uh, to, to our listeners are you kidding me <laughs> i'll go home and tell my son what a sony walkman is <laughs> I'll add one other little comment to that. And by the way, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Tim. You think about how music is has such a strong link to memory. I know they've done studies where yeah. smell is very directly linked to memory. Mm -hmm. I think whatever that link is, music and memory is even stronger. Oh, oh yeah. My memory, real quick, uh, with Tom Sawyer is I had a friend of mine, who I'll leave nameless, but he was my age and he was winning the he was winning drum competitions for the state of california when he was 16 years old in the 19 year old category he was phenomenal on drums and still is to this day 
Anyway, he learned this when we were, I think, sophomores or juniors in high school. Wow. And we would go over to his house. And you mentioned how Neil Peart said mm-hmm. how, you know, technically speaking, this is a very challenging song even for him. And he wrote the drum part. Yeah. And my friend could nail it. You're kidding. And I That's remember incredible. sitting in his great room he had upstairs where his drum set was and watching him nail Tom Sawyer with his, he had a great stereo system. He would crank it and he was banging away on Tom Sawyer, note for note, you know, hit for hit. Wow. And I just being absolutely floored. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's a great memory. Okay. We're devolving now, but have you seen this YouTube video of the five-year-old that that can play Moby Dick on the drums? (laughs) No (laughs) way. It's It's impressive. It's incredible. I mean, look, the kid's really, really good. He's not John Bonham and he's not perfect, but for five years old, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, well, I'll be honest with you, and this is totally outside of the podcast, but I, for me being a guitar player, I've spent some time on YouTube watching young prodigy guitar players kind of show their wares a little bit. And it actually made me put down my guitar for a while. Wow. wow. There is the, the level of talent that's out there. Yeah. I mean, YouTube's a fascinating thing because it gives a stage for all of that stuff. You can see four year olds that are playing classical guitar with brilliant technique. Wow. I mean, it's absolutely astounding out there. Well, and you know, frankly, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that's new to this generation. I think that those types of prodigies have always been there. You just get to see it now because of, you know, the, the media age and and YouTube in particular. Um, but it does go to show that there are a lot of really, really talented people out there who are never famous. That's right. And, and, and may never even really earn a living from doing what they can do really, really well and better than some people who do earn a living. I think what separates a great musician from a successful rock star, so to speak, in this context, it's all in the creativity and the songwriting. Yeah. You can be a brilliant tactician, music, sorry, brilliant technician musically. But if you don't have the creative abilities to write a riff that Tom oh, Sawyer's that we can all yeah, sit there yeah. and hum in our head and to have those lyrics, that's where the that's where the cream rises, in my cool. opinion. Which sort of begs the question: Why was Quiet Riot popular? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't care if I've just offended Quiet Riot fans. <laughs> Uh, you could add a long list of bands behind yeah, that like name. Yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Treg. That was a great podcast. For our listeners, please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong. If you have an interesting Rocktail Hour of your own, uh, please leave us uh, the information and we'll take a look at it. Or if you have a recommendation of a song that you'd like us to research for Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, well, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll give you a foot massage. No. What the hell? (laughs) Did you put that in there? (laughs) (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I've liked you on Facebook. Where's my foot massage? Yeah, no, no, no. You gotta rate us on iTunes to get the foot massage. <laughs> Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and Twig will. Twig. <laughs> now he's on more fun. Please follow. Please follow us on Facebook. <laughs> Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and Treg will give you a foot massage if you rate us on iTunes. <laughs> also, please contact us if you want to buy the next round in an upcoming Rocktail Hour by becoming a sponsor. Until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs>